I am Bob. I'm a drug addict and alcoholic. I'll have to get his definition of purity after the meetings of I gotta tell you, it's a delight to be in a meeting hall with this many people and, and clean air. I noticed they didn't have the balls to make the meeting an hour and a half with no break. <laughs> Figured they have about four people. <laughs> but nobody's hooked, of course. Right? None of the smokers are addicted to the cigarettes. They got it under control. I sat there watching the line go out the door. Man, some serious expressions. <laughs> I'll talk to you in a minute. <laughs> See me outside. <laughs> I don't care if you want to kill yourself. If I don't get outside, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> but, Christ, it's just a little old habit, Jesus. It's something that, you know, anytime you want, you can give it up. I, uh, uh, Lately, it's been interesting. I went to a lot of uh, uh, conventions last year, and uh, <clears throat> I'd sit and I'd listen to the speakers. And a lot of them are speakers I've known for, you know, people I've known for 20 years. And uh, they give this great AA quote convention talk, unquote. And about 55 minutes of rousing story, you know, degradation, humiliation, pain, suffering, drugs, booze, dirty clothes, humiliating situations, <clears throat> pain, suffering, just all of the misery. And I had about five minutes left in their talk, they would sort of, as if by the clock, suddenly they would get into where they had just risen from the ashes of all this 25 years ago and came to AA and they stand before you today in their $500 suit and their $200 shoes and they have their $40,000 automobile out front and it's been great. <clears throat> <laughs> and the stories would be real and the pain and suffering would be real and and everybody would cry you know for the hankies and the shirts because that's a very dramatic moment that when we told somebody all that we went through to get here I mean and then you say God and here I am I'm sober I don't have to drink today and the emotion would just pour out you know and the people would leap to their feet and give a standing ovation to the speaker and i go back to my room and I'd be uncomfortable in my stomach and that's my that's the yardstick I have whether I'm on the path or not <laughs> certainly not this <clears throat> and uh, this went on uh, for uh, most of the year and late last year I was in, in New York and uh, this time again uh, the speakers are the same thing and, and a couple of them are, are old old acquaintances of mine and, and God knows the story was real pain and 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 the same thing, you know, I rose from the ashes and God, the audience went nuts, you know, you know and cheers, and, and, and I, God, I went back to my room and I'm like, oh, really uncomfortable. And finally, I looked over at my lady and I said, I got it, I got it. 
I know I've been uncomfortable all goddamn year listening to these talks. And it's like, we are celebrating the first miracle, which is sobriety. I mean, we somehow, we've taken a, a, it seems to me, if you're new tonight, everything I say is my own opinion and, you know, come back tomorrow night and hear somebody else's opinion. We've, we've taken a turn to, and, and we've gotten so lost for the need to have the drama in the convention and the need not to say anything that will offend anybody because God forbid I should, you know we should say that you're really killing yourself by smoking and you should quit now I pissed you off and you won't like me so you know I can't risk saying that right <laughs> which by the way I will say that you are killing yourself by smoking <laughs> but don't concern yourself with that I mean get on to something more monumental like buying a new car you know which you won't need a long warranty on <laughs> so suddenly I realized we've gotten to the point here where at least my experience has been the, the most highly rated I'm guessing if we rate speakers and we seem to around here the most highly rated of the convention speakers are the ones who have risen from the ashes, who give this dramatic, painful, God-forsaken story. It doesn't matter, they've been sober 30 years, they still devote 55 minutes to what it used to be like, and 5 minutes to what it's like now. We've even gotten to the point where we devote a lot of the focus of the attention of the meetings on newcomers. I don't want to fully understand that. The newcomers come in here by the Honda full. Right? They are in the minority at any meeting. We're losing them out the other end by the truckload. You know? And yet our focus is back here behind us somewhere. And at time, I mean, it's like we get this first... The sobriety, as far as I can tell, is the first miracle. Sobriety, I guess, I mean, anyway, the way I interpret it, is the beginning. But if guys 30 years sober are still devoting 95% of their talk to what it used to be like, and the gratitude and emotion in their life today comes from no longer being like that, then it would lead anybody with, you know, a fourth of their wiring left, right, to assume that sobriety is the end. So you work these steps, go to these meetings, put up with this bullshit until you die. <laughs> Basically about it. Don't hope for a lot, you won't be too disappointed. <laughs> Christ, my parents gave me the same message when I was that high. You know, come in this house, be quiet. <laughs> Don't have any opinions, don't cause any trouble, don't hope for a lot, you'll be okay. And if it comes easy, it's bad. You gotta work hard, bust your ass, or it's, uh, you know, sin, right? You come in AA, they say turn it over to God, and, and that, there's a big concept there, you know, spiritual path is easy. Huh? Watch people in AA sometimes, watch friends around you when good things are put in their path, watch them walk around it. <laughs> Comes too easy. Just take a detour. 
look at it out of the corner of their eye. <laughs> so I figure, uh, I don't have a need to be popular anyway. <laughs> so let's assume that sobriety is the first miracle. Well, if sobriety is the first miracle and then not the last miracle, we're not doing a hell of a lot about it around here. You know, we certainly aren't. I never was, in, at least in my first 12 years of sobriety, was never evidence <laughs> that sobriety was the beginning of anything. <laughs> you know, first couple of years, you just hang on. <laughs> People say, why are you here? I say, because I don't want to go back. You know, I, I got no desire to be here. I don't like any of you goddamn people. The fucking meetings are boring me to tears, but it's better than that. So I'm staying. <clears throat> so like the first couple of years was just like we'll kind of have this little flamethrower in our butt just blowing us right, right on through here, you know. We do things we don't want to do, talk to people we don't like, go to meetings we hate, you know, work steps we don't believe in, you know, pray to a God we know is waiting to just nail us the first chance we get. <clears throat> so that's the first couple of years. <laughs> Well, I guess I want you to do something to change the pattern. So I know for years I didn't behave as if sobriety was the beginning of anything. It was just like, you know, hey, it's where you came between drinking and dying. <laughs> you know, that's it. And uh, I heard a guy one time, a respected, you know, boisterous member of one of the clubs in, in, uh, in Los Angeles, long sober, and this will tell you why we got turned off the goddamn road where somewhere I think we took the wrong fork, right? Because <clears throat> unfortunately Bill and Dr. Bob didn't stay around forever to, to keep bopping it down the right path, right? So this guy says in a meeting, he looks out, he's speaking at a young people's meeting at a big AA clubhouse in Southern California, 25 years sober at the time he gives this talk and he says to the young people in the audience, of which I was one at that time, he says, I feel really sorry for you guys. You're here so young that none of you will be able to stay sober until you die. Did they tell you anything about his program? That it's so painful being sober, that it's so difficult, that hanging in there, that not changing, resisting change and trying to keep the status quo is so hard. He figured if you're going to stay sober 40 years, you have to drink first. You can never make it. Now, where we got off on all these ideas, I'll never know. I mean, if you read it all about Bill and Dr. Bob, you'll, you'll man, a minute, if, if anything, these two cats were not picked by mistake. You know, I mean, God did not choose these two guys because he just picked the first two alcoholics he could find. He found two real, honest-to-God seekers. People who were seekers. Bill, God knows, had been trying everything on the planet and trying to get sober for years, right? He gets sober, he went on in to try acid, right? LSD and, and, and on to, and into niacin. Legal and, and spiritual experiments, you know, experiments. Don't think he was out there buying street corner stuff. It was long before it was popular. But I mean, he was out there, you know, doing it, right? Saying, looking for more, looking for another way to help the alcoholic on the path. I mean, they used to have seances at, at, at Dr. Bond's house, for Christ's sake talk to mediums, try and communicate with the dead. These are good guys. 
these are guys who are looking for something. And somewhere it seems we got to a place where we quit looking for something. I don't know why. Is it because we don't think we're going to get it? See, that's my trick. You know, that's what I do everything in my life. You give me something really nice, and I have sort of a blasé attitude about it. You know, inside, part of you saying, Oh, God, isn't that great, man? And another part saying, No, it's not that big a fucking deal. You know, uh, <laughs> it's okay, but it's probably going to get destroyed when the house burns down next week. <laughs> so let's not get too attached to it, you know. I mean, I do that with everything in my life, and I know a lot of people that do that. It's like somebody said once, you know, you, I, I think you, uh, um, yeah, God, I can't remember expression. Something to do with ice cream. Oh, well, doesn't it? Anyhow, uh, having reached a point of sobriety where I began to perceive that sobriety was the beginning and not the end, forces you to look at your life. Now, if you go home tonight and you write down at the top of a piece of paper, sobriety is the beginning. The beginning. And then evaluate your life. <laughs> you may find there's a few things you want to change. Most of them, if you're honest, will be your own behavior. And most of it will be your own attitude, if you're honest. If you're into everybody else's behavior and attitude, <laughs> try it again next week. <laughs> or try it the next day. I change, you know, personality changes from day to day, more hour to hour, minute to minute. <laughs> What'd you say? I don't know. What'd you say? <laughs> so once I began to look at sobriety as a beginning, I thought, Jesus, you know, if I'm going to be around a while, it wouldn't hurt to take care of myself. You know, got some reasonable health here. Uh, I'm a firm believer in the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I don't know if anybody else is, but I've looked for that sucker forever, right? I always know it's going to be there. And when I'm in financial trouble, I always go to the mailbox. For days, I'll go in a row looking for the letter telling me that dear Aunt Harriet died. <laughs> and has left me a goddamn fortune, right? Now, I don't have a dear Aunt Harriet, <laughs> but I always hope that they find one somewhere and that she'll kick the bucket. I believe in that philosophy to such a point where here a few months ago, I had a very depressing heart-to-heart -heart talk with the business manager that handles my money, and he put me in touch with reality, and it was very bleak. <laughs> and I left his office more than a little depressed. The mind was keeping me from doing any momentary praying. <laughs> it was preparing its speeches for bankruptcy court, you know. <laughs> Driving down the street, and I looked in my rearview mirror, and behind me was a really old Cadillac limousine, right? Nice condition, but old. A 50s Cad limo. And there was an old guy driving it, and an even older lady in the back seat, right? It was limo. Now, I knew, I swear to God, you got to remember, this is 22 years clean and sober driving down the street, right? I knew, there was a moment there that I knew that they were going to honk their horn and flash their lights in that limo and have me pull over, and this old bride was going to get out and lay a million dollars on me. 
I would drop to my knees in the street in tears of gratitude, and she would know that she had given it to the right person. <laughs> Unfortunately, I turned left, and they kept going straight on down the street, right? But I believe in that. You know, there's a part of me that always says, there's that pot of gold. Well, here about six months ago or eight months ago, the first part of last year, um, up in Canada, this guy won the Canadian lottery, the big smasher, right? $14 million. In Canada, lotteries are tax-free. You get every penny, right? Now, I'd say he hit it. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know that it's enough for me, but it's goddamn close, okay? <clears throat> So he's got $14 million, the pot of gold. Now he can go do all those things he dreams about. He can do all the things he hopes about. He can be frivolous if he wants. He can do anything he wants. He can do anything, anything he wants. Six weeks later, he died. He wasn't in good health. He hadn't taken care of himself. That's it. Six weeks later, he's dead. I remember when that happened, and I thought, you know, I may not going to be hitting that sucker for another 20 years. Right? <clears throat> but when I hit it, <laughs> I goddamn don't want six weeks left. You know what I mean? <clears throat> I want another 20 20 years left, right? Like, I'm, I'm 49 headed for 59, and I'm in reasonably good shape for my age. Now, as the national average goes, I'm sure I'm way the hell above it, and as AA goes, I know I'm way above it, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> but this is just the beginning, see? I plan on being in better shape when I'm 50. And I plan on even better shape yet when I'm 51. And there's no reason in the world that I can't achieve all of these things. I just started a little late. It took me a long time. So I have to be very patient with this whole process of, of taking care of myself. Because when you haven't done it for 40-some years, the body doesn't respond like it's 17. And as we have a tendency, the alcoholic, to be into instant gratification, God knows we've stuck enough large needles in our arms, you know, that's not what you call patient, you know. <laughs> I want it now! <laughs> it took me probably eight months of, of little tiny sit-ups getting getting the back maybe this far off the floor, right? To get to the point where I could even begin to do what they call the baby sit-up for a bad back, which is about this far off the floor, right? It took eight months, eight solid months to achieve that. Right? So it's like, if you're listening to some of this and you're starting to get plugged into the idea that sobriety is not the end but might perhaps be the beginning, some of this is going to appeal to you and it's going to trigger in you a desire to do it. <clears throat> My caution would be, it seems to work best for most of us, although some people can give everything up at once, walk away from it all, and just like walking into another room and survive. 
I've had to like do it piecemeal. I mean, I started becoming conscious of that there were just things that were not good for me about 12 years ago. 12 years ago. And that's when I gave up red meat. I knew that one was no good because I had been living, my wife was dying of cancer and everyone we took her to were only the people involved in the non-toxic treatment of cancer. In other words, the treatment would not kill you. And that was like the first thing they all automatically immediately eliminated from the diet was red meat. So a while after she had died, I and we had both were, you know, voracious meat eaters. And uh, so a while after she passed away, a little light bulb went on and said, this is not a necessary substance here, you know. They lived for tens of thousands of years on this planet before anybody had ever seen a goddamn cow. So I suppose <clears throat> we can go on a few years, you know, without it. So that one was easy, you know. That and then it was followed by pork, which was not as easy because I loved bacon. The bacon was a little hard to give up. It was like the last ditch stand, you know. And uh, a few years later came cigarettes. Now for me, strange talk. Well, what the hell? <laughs> Wes is responsible, you know, for <laughs> drive by his house and give him shit if, uh, you know. <laughs> and for me and a lot of people I know, that seems to be the really first big step of standing up and saying, I'm worth taking care of. I deserve to take care of my, to be taken care of. And it's almost as if that act of giving up a cigarette begins to change. For me, it began to change everything. After a few months of not smoking, I'm now confronted with another problem. I eat, I eat sugar by the, by the, by the shovel full. <laughs> I'm hypoglycemic and don't care because now it works like a narcotic. You know, once you're hypoglycemic and you keep eating sugar, it's great. Just put your right to sleep. <laughs> have a late night Sunday and you don't have to deal with anything, man. You wake up on the couch in the morning with a stiff neck. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's like a drug. So now I'm weighing 40 pounds more than I was when I quit smoking and, uh, and I'm shoveling in sugar. So we have to now deal with the weight and we have to deal with the sugar. So that becomes a process, you know. For anybody thinking about giving up sugar, I highly suggest Washington Red Delicious Apple. <laughs> Buy a case. <laughs> <laughs> so I ain't got me off of it. I don't think I could ever got off sugar without apples. Don't know I've ever made it without the apples. Just something, you know. <laughs> We are a compulsive obsessive, but I am a compulsive obsessive personality. Anyway, and it's like, once the sugar was gone and the cigarettes were gone, I was like, and the coffee too, I hadn't drank it in years. I gave it up the same time I gave red meat up. My body gave it up. My body just said, you drank your lifetime supply no more, you know. <clears throat> you can't drink anymore. My throat closed one morning. I was trying to drink a cup of coffee. My throat just closed. It doesn't take a lot for me to, <laughs> to get a message, but I got the message. Um, so after that, after the cigarettes and sugar began a process that just seems natural. You just start wanting to feel better. Now, unless you've been living in a cave for about a hundred years, the proof is in that nutrition and mental health are linked like this. They have just done three major studies that I know of on us. And they have come up with the number one cause of the sober alcoholic returning to drinking. You're going to love it. <laughs> Nutrition. Nutrition. 
number one cause of the sober alcoholic going back to drinking. Why? Well, it seems to be, for the most part, that if you eat crap, you feel like crap. That's general rule. Now, if you're like I am, you've been doing it so successfully for so long, you don't know you feel bad. You know you don't feel great, but you don't know you feel bad. I mean, I, I was talking tonight about those low-grade depressions, right? Which you don't know you had it until you're out of it. And then you're out of God, I feel really good. Boy, I felt really bad last week. I, I didn't know I felt that bad last week. But the same thing with we're so hooked in. I was so hooked in to feeling the way I was feeling from eating all the crap that I was eating that I was just kind of going along in this low-grade depression. And I can understand that. I can believe that. If you continue to feel bad long enough and you are an alcoholic or an addict, you will seek relief. You will seek relief. Now, it's like, isn't this a fun talk? <laughs> now you know why these other guys tell their goddamn story because they don't like, you know, 150 people looking at them like they want to like tar and feather them and run them the hell out of town. <laughs> you know? <clears throat> See, but I know down inside of you, there's a little guy or a little gal saying, listen, listen to what he's saying. Because I was living with that person for the first ten years, trying to ignore it and sobriety. And I'd meet a really healthy person, you know, a really, someone into health and exercise and spirituality, and I hated them. <laughs> but there was a part of me that was drawn to them. I would still slide over and Hi. How are you? You know. I'm great, thanks. How about yourself? Not bad. <laughs> I'm alright, you know. It, it's like, and now, today in AA, we're getting the new breed in, and I love them. They're great. There's a younger generation that's coming in here in their 20s that's blowing me away. Because they come walking into AA, and they have been vegetarians, for ten years, right? They don't smoke. They don't drink coffee. They've been in the Himalayas to talk to the high lamas. They've been in India and sat by the stream sides with the gurus, you know, and the yogas. I mean, they have been seeking like crazy, like mad. And they've come into AA because heroin was interfering. <laughs> <laughs> with their spiritual consciousness, right? <clears throat> well, they hang around here for a little while, a few months, you know, get rid of the heroin, get it, most of it out of the system, and now they're like, oh, they know they have found the path, and they look at us, and they're raising more havoc in AA than in Southern California than anybody they know, because they'll be in their little home group, and they'll look around the table, and all these guys smoking the cigarettes one after another and shoveling in the cookies and pouring in the coffee. And they have this moment of clarity and they look at their, their group and their sponsor, you know, and they say, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> and then they're immediately attacked. While you're sober longer, you understand. That's a great question. Understand what? Never mind. <laughs> and they'll look at their sponsor and say, I heard a kid say this, but I don't want to understand that self-destruction is okay. The sponsor walked out of them. Left the meeting. 
Just walked out. He had no response. He'd been nailed. Nailed by this goddamn newcomer. <laughs> who was delighted to be here with big eyes. Because he understood sobriety was the beginning. He understood he could have anything he wanted to have. He understood he could be anything he wanted to be. Any risk he was willing to take, any price he was willing to pay, he could have out of the sobriety and out of Alcoholics Anonymous anything he wanted. That's a pretty good deal. No wonder he was happier than his peers. <laughs> he thought this was great here. He thought sobriety was wonderful. I didn't think it was too terrific when I was beginning. <laughs> Better than dying, but that was about it, you know. <laughs> but not, not something I came to get, you know. I came to stop something. I didn't come to get anything. And I think that's part of the problem. We arrive with this attitude that we're stopping something, not coming to get something. And the mind, of course, loves all those word games, you know. Oh, this is the end of the road here. <laughs> we sunk to the goddamn bottom this time, boy. <laughs> what are you going to do for an encore? Kill yourself? You know, it's, and, and, and so if you begin with that attitude, you're not going to put any energy or effort into this program or into the steps or into any aspect of it. You're not going to have anything to do with any of it. You're going to just plod along, like I plod along. You're going to do only what's absolutely necessary to do to keep you from drinking or blowing your brains out. The thought of really standing up, you know, getting loose and going for a piece of life would scare you to death. Because the mind will leap in there and go, don't expect too much. You won't be very disappointed. Take it easy. Don't rush it. You can give up smoking next year. <clears throat> You're going to have a lot of stress this year. You're going to need your cigarettes, right? The mind is always there to project nothing but positiveness for us in our life. Quit smoking in 86. 85 is going to be a son of a bitch, you know. You barely got through 84. 85 is going to tear your ass off, you know what I mean? So at least allow yourself cigarettes. A little coffee and a few hot fudge Sundays. <clears throat> That's the only battle you're going to fight here is with your mind. The mind which has been so geared and so triggered and so schooled and has so much misinformation in it thanks to the original dynamic duel, right? Who have gotten a bad information from their mother and father that your battle is with that. It's not with anybody else but yourself. The only reason you're not taking care of yourself if you're not, because, I mean, who, who, who are we going to blame? Why, why are you not? Granted, a lot of us didn't have great role models. Okay? I mean, my mother's, you know, I've been trying to change my mother's diet now for 10 years. <laughs> Forget it. Right? You know, I mean, there's a consciousness, and if you can't break the consciousness, there's nothing you can do about it. You know, I mean, I take writing shoes down and say, come on, man, let's, you know, take a walk, you know. People don't want to walk. They don't want to walk. You know, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what you do. So that's a lot of why we have a problem is that we have no role models. One of the things that I'm delighted about that's changing in AA is <clears throat> people are becoming conscious of this stuff in AA. There's a whole gang. 
30 runners are starting in the Alano Club. There won't be any smoking in the Alano Club at all. I'm not even sure if they'll serve coffee. Probably not. Mostly juices and fruits and things like that. No sugar will be served under any circumstances. They get birthday cakes made, they'll get them made sugarless. They'll see that they're made with fructose or barley malt or, or rice, rice malt. On top of the regular 12-step meetings, they will have outside lecturers come in to talk about nutrition, to talk about spiritual matters, to talk about exercise, to instruct, to talk about yoga. I figure probably 31 people will go, the guys that are starting it, <laughs> and some one poor goddamn newcomer they grab. <laughs> but, the thing I like about it is they're smart enough to do it in the Lano Club, which is not AA and has nothing to do with AA, so you know, the old war horses are just going to have to sit and keep quiet if they understand their own tradition, right? I love them anyway, you know. <laughs> That's not the way we did it back in 25, you know. Thank God for that. <laughs> the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous has an interesting line in it. So I love it. God will constantly disclose more to you and to ask him each day in your morning meditation. God will constantly disclose more to you. There's a lot of new information in now, guys. A whole lot of new information has been come out of our society since the book was written originally. I guarantee you that if Dr. Bob and, and Bill were to find AA today, brand new, let's say AA didn't exist, and those two guys found it today, right now, you know, March 1st, 1985, I assure you, I'd stake my life on it. Therapy, nutrition, and exercise would be integral parts of the program. They wouldn't have left one of them out because they grabbed everything that was available to them at the time the program was put together. They reached for all the information that was out and kept looking for more. I mean, Bill was the one that got so far off into the night and tripped. Hey, oh, look, man, he's out of there. Had <laughs> never mind. See, I love that stuff. That stuff gets me excited, you know. I'm, I'm overjoyed that Bill and Dr. Bob were seekers. That it wasn't enough, that they wanted more. Where's more information? How can I feel better? How can I get healthier? What can trigger something? What can I do? You know, I mean, that, that excites me. It just came to me tonight and said, uh, you're going to get to spend a weekend with one or two guys, Bob. Over here we have Bill. Bill uh, drove to Malibu at 5 o'clock this morning to participate in a sunrise trampoline meditation service on the beach. Well, over here we have Charlie. Charlie, 35 years sober, lives in the Alano Club and can recite the book word for word. I want to spend the weekend with Bill, man. I want to see what he found out at sunrise, <laughs> bouncing up and down on his goddamn trampoline on the beach, you know. I want to see what happened, what happened, what you learned, you know. What went on, you know. I, I know what this guy knows. I can pick up the goddamn book. I don't need somebody wobbed bound to a chair. I want the people who are out there reaching for more because they're not afraid, because they believe God loves them, because they think that sobriety is a beginning. Sobriety is a beginning. It's a start. 
you know. And I got to tell you, if that's one little attitude that you can you can change, if you should not have that attitude, it'll do wonders for your life. You know, you'll find you may need extra tools. You'll find you may want more help. You may want to spend time with a minister to get some better idea about God. You may want to read different books <clears throat> written by different mystics and prophets and yogas and whoever the hell you want. Feel free to read it all. You know, it says in the book, make use of all the outside tools you, you like. You know, they only your little aids to help on the path. I'm grateful for every tool that's been forced on. I'm so grateful for the last five years of therapy that I had to go through. You know, I'm thankful for it. Thankful for it. It was a tool I needed before I had to die. Because I had to find out why I couldn't do these things. I had to find out why I was coming apart 17 years sober. Why I still didn't feel like I deserved anything really good in my life. Why I knew all those things that were good in my life were going to be taken away from me. And I had to live in that fear. I had to go get help to find out why. Because if you're still doing that and you're 17 years sober, <laughs> you know, I don't want somebody to come and say, write another inventory. You know what I mean? <laughs> Seriously jeopardize our relationship. <laughs> Because <laughs> by the time I was 17 years old, I'd written 32 goddamn inventories, you know. I just didn't understand that I had missed one point of view, a crucial point of view. I forgot to write one about what was done to me. I spent 17 years writing all the inventories about what I'd done. I forget to write that critical one about what was done to me, why I felt the way I felt. What happened when I was so small and being formulated that I couldn't grow up with a zest for life? That I couldn't grow up knowing I counted that I was important? That I grew up with no goddamn personality at all? You know, a need to please, an inability to function in a social world. How come? You know, why? You know, once I found, start to find out why, I begin to understand things. You know, once I begin to understand things, I understand responsibility always comes back to me. Always comes back to me. I mean, I can't tell you what a relief it was to find out that a lot of the behavior, <clears throat> it was just great to, to, to realize that, that, that what transpired when I was a child was wrong. I wasn't wrong. What went on was wrong. I was raised with behavior that is criminally punishable by law. People can be put in fucking jail. And I was walking around thinking there was something wrong with me. Nothing wrong with me. I'm okay. I'm okay. Now I gotta take care of me. Well, that's a that's a double-edged sword, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. I get to take care of me. I don't know how. What do I do now? Shit. Nobody taught me. You know, that's where the fun begins. Thank God we have sobriety as, a, as an operating table or a foundation stone to, to take off of, to start from. This is not exactly the talk I had in mind. Uh, didn't eat a lot of it, but I did it. You know, I cooked birds. <laughs> I could never spend a day alone. I could never do any of those things. This last Christmas I spent with my best friend who's about sober about as long as I am. Been in therapy long period of time like I have. His girlfriend, who is not on the program and who is a therapist, Two friends of theirs was a Jungian psychiatrist and his wife was also a therapist. And we were just laughing and talking and carrying on and having this big Christmas dinner and having the best time. 
At one point during the video, it dawned on me quietly inside. I thought, God, isn't this interesting? Here are five people sitting at this table, all of whom I consider to be in basically good mental health. None of them are with their family for Christmas. <laughs> I mean, Christmases with my family are a killer. I don't know about yours, but Jesus, I mean, it's the same old dynamics. Nothing changes. Everybody sits in the same chairs, drinks the same booze, tells the same jokes. The same uncle who's still fucking drunk that broke my train 43 years ago. You know? I don't want to play anymore. I'm through, you know. I'll come down after Christmas and say hi, you know, to the family. I wish I had time for that one. I take them to family Christmas anyway. Um... There's a story I love to tell, which I probably may have told here a hundred times, and maybe not, <clears throat> but I enjoy it because it uh, kind of points up a lie that we tell ourselves. And um, that is, um, oh yeah, with the exercise too, if you're starting any of this stuff, don't be afraid to start all out, <laughs> which you'll stop shortly and won't do it again for a while. <clears throat> Or, or little bits and pieces at a time. See, I used to try this stuff. Haven't you tried this stuff? I mean, I was sober. I didn't roll in the goddamn gym. I'd go Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I'd last maybe six weeks, eight weeks. I'd miss one day. Goodbye. i never go back, right? Life, i got more lifetime memberships and more goddamn gyms and alcohol. You know, and, it's, and they're all out of business, and I never got there. You know, and I used, that used to bother me. I think, why can't I continue on? Why well, didn't have any self-esteem? If you don't, if you don't have any self-esteem, you can't take care of yourself. The two, you two must be there. You must, you must have a high regard for yourself in order to be take, able to take care of yourself. Geez, now I, I, like, I give up two hours every morning, an hour and a half, two hours. I give up two hours to prayer, meditation, yoga stretches, free weights, and, and some exercises. And that doesn't count running on the days that I run. You know, I mean, that's, I, I take at least if I have to go somewhere, if I have to be someplace early in the morning, I just get up earlier, or however many hours it takes. So I can have that time in advance. I take Sundays off, okay? Um, and uh, if I don't feel 100% on a given day, I don't do all the exercise. I give myself a little break. My diet's very rigid. I won't even go into it with you, but I'm very flexible with it, too. I mean, every now and then, I will go out to a Chinese restaurant and I order my three favorite dishes and I don't even mention monosodium glutamate to them. Fuck it, let it bring it on, you know? <laughs> like my big slip, you know, <laughs> my junk for the month. You know? <laughs> okay, let's tell the story and ease off. <laughs> I've enjoyed this. I really have because, you know, the reason I've enjoyed it is I haven't shared anything with you that I don't know to be the truth based on my experience and on the experience of people that I'm close to in AA who hold the same beliefs. See, I know this is true. I know exercise is critical. I know nutrition is critical. I know prayer and meditation is critical. I know not smoking is critical. I know all these things are really important, and I know it by experience. And it's the only reason I come here and spend all this time risking your disapproval, knowing I'm just grinding at the things that you don't want to look at. And the only reason I'm grinding at it is because there's something in me that drives me to say, wake up. Wake up. You know, they got us to sleep, it's time to wake up. I'm a pain in the ass now that I take care of myself. You know, I don't take shit from nobody anymore, you know. 
I don't care if it's the Bank of America or if it's the President of the United States or I don't care who it is. I will not sit still anymore and let anybody fuck over me. I will now stand up and say, hey, excuse me, sir, that's wrong. Yeah? I have records here. Let me show you what's right. <laughs> you know? I'm terrible. No wonder they want us to eat all that crap. Keeps us peaceful. Yeah? I don't make no trouble when I'm full of junk. Oh, you're going to deny me my thing? Oh, okay. I mean, I went through the worst fiscal year I've ever had in my life last year. Absolutely bottomed out, right? And I mean, it got I bad to the point where I had to sit down and cut up the credit cards and send them back with nice letters saying, you know, sorry, but <laughs> we did the best we could and it's not enough, I know, in your eyes, but <laughs> here it is. You know, this isn't a violation of trust. It's just victims of circumstances. And I was going through all this, and there was three or four major lines of credit I wanted to save. And I was in so much trouble that these kind of banks run periodic TRW checks on you to see how you are so they can make sure that all that unsecured credit's okay. Well, they saw mine and went nuts, right? And immediately said, you're canceled. The only three cards I was trying to keep. And I got on the phone and said, no, I'm not canceled. You can't cancel me. I've been a customer of this bank for 12 goddamn years. I have never not paid on time. 12 years of a perfect relationship has got to count for something. You can't throw it aside. Now, I want you to understand that you and I can resolve this or you and I may not resolve this. But I will assure you that if it is not resolved, in my opinion, the way I want it resolved, then I will write a letter to the goddamn chairman of the board a first interstate bank and arrange a meeting to tell them how you treat an old... I mean, I just went for the juggler, right? <laughs> Everybody relented. Everybody said, well, uh, Mr. Earl, uh, in view of your long-standing, maybe we could extend the line of credit a little longer. I said, thank you. I hung up and I walked away. I felt good. I stood up for me. I've been waiting for somebody to stand up for me for 48 years. I didn't know it had to be me. <laughs> I kept marrying people, hoping they would stand up for me. You know, I went everywhere I could, but for somebody to stand up for me. You know, I suddenly, got to be me. I got to think enough about me to stand up for me. That's it. But that's see, I'm trying to share with you. Sobriety is the beginning. This is all stuff I couldn't do, man. I used to eat food that I didn't order in restaurants, you know. I ate cold food. Jesus, I couldn't send anything back. I didn't want to cause a disturbance, you know. I was raised by people who would not cause a public disturbance. At home, they'd fucking kill anything, you know. But <laughs> Publicly, they, you know. Oh, no, that's okay. Eat your meal. Shh, be quiet, you know. But, Daddy, I didn't know. Shh, 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 shh. You know, eat your meal. Huh. Yeah. Okay, anyway. <laughs> I feel good. Um, one of the biggest excuses you will use to not do any of this stuff is you will tell yourself that it's too late. It's too late. The mind will tell you that you're too old. It's too late. Forget it. You know? It's a waste of goddamn time. You're going to die in a few years anyway. Why, why fuck up those few years with exercise and good nutrition? <laughs> you know? I mean, the mind is great. If you ever really listen to it, I don't mean listen to it like we listen to it, but if you ever really listen to it, you'll realize what kind of trouble you've got here. You know, it's not, not a logical piece of machinery at all. Anyway, a couple of years ago, I was watching television. I was watching a sporting event. And before the event began, 
they were interviewing this guy. And this guy was telling, the guy was telling the interviewer, he was saying, well, you know, he said, when I was 65 years old, my son came into my room one morning <clears throat> at the house and said, Dad, we're going to have to put you in a home. And, and he said, I said, no, I don't want to go to a home. I'll do anything, but don't put me in a home. And his son said to him, look, you're not doing anything, man. You're sitting here dying. You're doing nothing. You smoke, you eat shit, and you just sit and you're dying. It's not good for me, it's not good for my wife, and it's not good for the kids to see this. And the father said, I will do anything in the world to not go to a home. His son said, all right. Get up tomorrow morning, come run with me. The next morning, the old man got up with his kid and went out to run. <clears throat> and the old guy lasted a quarter of a block, one-fourth of a block. He could not breathe, and his legs were trembling. They were so weak, they were ready to give in. And his son said, okay, Dad, never mind. Just go home. We'll talk about it later. We'll figure something out. Forget it. The old man got up <clears throat> the next morning and went out and tried again and only got a quarter of a block. Now, three months he got up every morning and finally at the end of three months he got to the point where he could barely get a mile. He could just barely run a mile at the end of three months. And at that point, a light bulb went on in his head. And this is a tough one. And this is one that a lot of us have to accept here. He realized that if he was in that bad condition, his whole life must have been wrong. Must have been wrong. And so he gave up eating shit. He gave up the cigarettes. He started to read books on God and positive thinking and a positive outlook towards life. When I was watching the interview... He was 83 years old and he was there in New York City to run his 14th New York Marathon. And he said he felt better than he felt when he was 40. They didn't have to put him in a home. I guess it's not too late. God bless you.